0: I just wanted to get your because I, you know, I was looking at your LinkedIn you know basically from uni all the way up until now you know a keen focus on sustainability and renewables um, and I wanted to know why that was the case and then the second part was just to get the general origin story of urban plant growers because that's been like a project on your plate for a while but you've, you've kind of only gone full-time on it recently um, which is really exciting so I, I just want to know both those angles and, and get your thoughts on them.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I guess I'll start with um, my intro to sustainability and why I got so interested in it. Um, I'd say it was sort of something I was always somewhat interested in. You know, I grew up, I did scouts, adventurers. I was always camping and hiking, um, played a lot of sports and stuff. I did a bit of travel when I was younger and was always shocked at how um, messy some developing countries could be. Obviously, I went to Sri Lanka a fair bit and there was a lot more waste than you see in Australia. Um so, yeah, I guess growing up it was something that I was sort of a bit interested in, but then I guess I lost touch over time. Like I didn't think about it too much. I was, you know, sort of something I was, I was kind of keen to just keep an eye on and not really put too much focus into. Um, going through uni, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was studying mechanical and business, um, but I didn't have an exact idea of like what kind of business I wanted to work in or what I wanted to do. Um, Until I started like traveling, I did a couple of backpacking trips with mates. Um, I did some uni programs to like, you know, Indonesia, um, India, Thailand, Vietnam. Um, And I guess through those travels, uh, yeah, I guess over time I started to realize like, you know, sustainability is something that matters in developing countries much more than it does in um, places like Australia because it's so – it's so visible. Mm. Um, you see the things that people do to be efficient and use their resource as well. But then you also see, like, there can sometimes be massive gaps in, um, in systems, like, you know, waste systems and stuff, which just result in the natural environment being super polluted, which is really hard to see sometimes. Um, mm. So I guess that's sort of what got me interested. And then I kind of, like, did a bit of soul searching, and I was like, okay, I want to work in renewables. Um, mm. I got an internship in energy efficiency. And at the time, mm. I was like, "Oh damn, I really wanted to work in renewables." Mm. Um, but then, the more I got into energy efficiency, the more I realized how interesting and exciting it was. Like, mm. you look at renewables and like stuff like solar; it's so stock standard. Sometimes you've just got panels, and if you're building a massive project, you just multiply out more panels. And I, I get that there is a lot of um, there can be it can be more complex than that. But mm. for the most part, it's it's you're building something new. Whereas mm. energy efficiency, you're usually working in commercial buildings and between those Mm. buildings you think about things that have been made in the last 50 years there's so much variation in how they're built in how their mechanical systems are set up in how their lighting systems are set up in how their building is controlled um Mm. so when you go to every site you realize like okay this is a completely complex like a completely unique and complex puzzle that you sort of have to fix What,
0: what 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 are you trying to optimize for uh as far as the efficiencies go
1: yeah good question so If you had like a pie chart of the breakdown of the energy consumption of like a big shopping center or a commercial building, like Mm. an office building, 10, 20 stories, usually like 60, 70 percent of the energy consumption would be heating, ventilation and air conditioning known as HVAC. Mm. Um, So that's like it, it looks completely different to what you would see in a home. In a home, you might have an air con and it's just like a little thing on the wall with maybe a little unit outside. In commercial systems, it's massive. They have cooling towers. They have big chillers, which make, you know, refrigerated water. They Mm -hmm. have um, air handler units, which are like, you know, big fans that blow air into the building. Um, They've got condensers. They've got boilers, uh, which are like hot water heaters. Mm -hmm. Um, And by having such big scale, you can have more efficient systems than you could if you were in a home. Uh, But the problem is, like, you think about a 30-degree day and there's 22-degree air touching your skin when you're inside a building that means that all the air in that building has been cooled eight degrees. Um, mm. And that's a lot of energy that's required to do that. So if you can optimise that, that's like, boom, 70% of um, a building's emissions. Mm. The other, like, 20%, 30% could be stuff like lighting and, um, like, pumps and smoke fans and um, ventilation and stuff like that.
0: Mm. So so did, did you start working on uh, urban plant growers kind of at this time, or was this like afterwards or when, what was the genesis story to that? And how did you come to find urban plant girls?
1: Yeah. Good question. So I was, um, I mean, I guess there's two sides to it. There's how I came across urban plant girls and how it sort of formed and how my business partner, Peter, (laughs) sort of his his journey to finding it. Um, Mm -hmm. my journey was, you know, I, I was working in as an intern in energy efficiency and kind of like learning about this stuff. I was interested in sustainability. Um, at the same time, I was, I was very interested in hydroponics. Like I was building all of these things in my backyard. Like my very first, um, hydroponic test was like a veggie white jar. I cut a hole in the top, put some rock wool in and just tried to grow a seed and it didn't work. And I didn't know why eventually I figured out it was the nutrients and then I needed to, um, get a, a full spectrum nutrient, you know, like a, a macronutrient and micronutrient solution that had everything plants needed to grow. Um, And then, you know, over time I tinkered and I made stuff out of PVC pipes and I got to the point where I was growing like, you know, 100 plants at the same time in my backyard Mm -hmm. using sunlight. Um, So I I was kind of looking at it from the perspective of how can we make these things scale and Mm -hmm. provide them to everybody. Um, On the other side of the coin was my business partner, Peter. And I think his sister had recently moved into an apartment which had no natural sunlight. And he was just like, well, if you live here, then how can you grow food or plants? Mm. Um, And that's how he came across hydroponics. He saw the grow lights and he was like, oh, okay, if you if you have these and you can grow stuff indoors. Um, So he yeah, he started looking around and he was like, oh, what can we do to kind of reach this market? And he came up with the concept of like an indoor smart garden, which Mm. is something that existed in America, um, but no one was providing in Australia. So he saw this gap in the market and he was like, definitely need to target that, need to do that. Um, Mm. But he had no idea about, like, the technology or anything. Mm. Um, So I guess he was sort of going on that path. And then a friend of ours linked us up and, you know, because I was just on a night out, I was chatting to my friend about how my hydroponics products are going and how everything's working in my backyard. And he was like, oh, Peter's working on that. You should chat to him about that. Oh, nice. So I did um, that night, like we were, we were out. I sent him a message. I was like, Hey man, I heard you're working on hydroponics. Like I'm interested in it as well. Let's mm-hmm. have a chat. And he was like, cool. I'm out as well. Let's chat tomorrow. So mm-hmm. the next morning, you know, we nurse our hangovers a little bit and um, you know, he gives me a call at like 11 AM uh, and we start talking about what his idea is compared to what my idea is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, Over the course of the chat, I was like, okay, he's got a better idea than me. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. But both on the same wavelength for sure. Both on the same wavelength. He had a better idea than me, but he had less knowledge about hydroponics. So like I I knew how the actual systems worked by then. I knew the technology, I knew the technical side Mm. of things. Um, So I was like, okay, this is something I can add value to. Um, Mm. Might as well start a business while I'm young. I've never done it before. And the next day, you know, we'd, we'd agreed that we're going to start a business. We had an ABN and we had started making some plans for how we're going to start testing things out.
0: Before we um, jump into the, the nitty gritty stuff, because I'm, I'm keen to do a sort of different format for the podcast today, which is almost like a masterclass for starting a direct-to-consumer e-commerce business. And, you know, I went to your uh, your warehouse in Merckville and you were explaining to me and I was super fascinated by it. And so I, I thought you had the because you started it from scratch with little to no knowledge on how to do this sort of thing. I feel like you have the full spectrum, um, of learnings from scratch. And, and I feel like a lot of people that might listen to this probably haven't started an e-commerce business or plan to. And so you could add a lot of value there. But before we do that, could, could you explain to me, um, what is a hydroponic system and, uh, and how does that work in the context of like a smart garden and in the product that you guys have have built?
1: Yeah, for sure. Good question. So, um hydroponics, the word itself, refers to growing plants without soil and growing them in water. So mm. um, typically you'll find that you can grow plants in little like rock wool cubes or vermiculite or perlite. They're basically like these mediums which, you know, mimic or replicate soil. Um, mm. And you can just put a seed in there and they'll start to grow. But once they start growing, they're obviously going to need nutrients, right? Like that's what in that's what is in the soil that helps plants to grow. It's the nutrients. So, um, you put the plants in the little pods, you, um, you kind of add some hydroponic nutrients and then they start to grow. Um, so that's sort of like how, how hydroponics works from that side. It's just a nutrient solution, which mimics and replaces all of the micro and macro nutrients that are required for plant growth in, um, conventional agriculture. The difference. Oh yeah, you go on. No, no, you go on. That's all good. I was just going to
0: say, does does hydroponic also refer to like the lighting system and how that differs? Like, when I think of hydroponic, I instantly go to go to you know artificial lighting and things of that nature.
1: Yeah, that's correct. So there's sort of the two pillars. The word itself kind of refers to um, how plants grow in water, and they use hydroponic Mm -hmm. nutrients to do that. Um, But then you you often see hydroponic systems using grow lights. Mm. grow lights mimic the wavelength of sun of light that plants need to grow so when you think about a plant growing out in the sun um, it's got all these different you know uh, wavelengths of light that are being radiated from the sun but it only uses a couple of small bands so primarily the wavelength between like 400 and 500 newton meters and then Mm. 600 and 700 so blue and red light primarily so if you you know, look up hydroponics, you'll often find pictures of like purple light because it's a mixture of both of those. Mm, So if you mix those two lights together, then you can give them the energy that they need to grow. Um, And then if you provide them with the hydroponic nutrients, you can give them the food that they need to grow. And then all you need is just like a a medium to hold them in place. So for us, we've got, we mainly use rock wool, which is sort of like, um, imagine you get a rock, you heat it up a lot and then you spin it super quickly like fairy floss you end up getting this super aerated um, sort of substrate. And then mm. it has really good germination properties, like up to 99% of seeds will germinate in the rock hole. Um, mm. And then, yeah, you just kind of put that in a system, put it in water, add some hydroponic nutrients, turn your lights on and your plants will grow. Mm. Super interesting. Can, can you expand the smart home concept
0: to, I, I was reading a couple of papers on this, actually end of last year, and I. About uh, sort of vertical gardens, um, commercial-sized vertical gardens. Can can you can you take this concept and then scale it out, and and you know set up a vertical uh, garden up in you know Marrickville, and then distribute your own brand of like uh, you know veggies or whatever to say a Woolies or a Coles. Like, can you take it yeah. that far, or is this like really optimized for the home?
1: Yeah. Um... With the technology, you can definitely take that far. So uh, in the U.S., there are a lot of companies that are kind of doing this vertical farming technology and scaling it out and getting venture capital funding. Um, They all basically have found a way to make a massive warehouse with heaps of lights and heaps of um, plants growing in it and then just sell it. Um, So I'd say, yeah, there's, there's huge potential for hydroponics on that commercial scale. Uh, When you start looking at commercial numbers, it's, like, 99% less water consumption than conventional agriculture, 90% less fertilizer, like, hundreds of times less land, yeah, Yeah. Um, and less less labor, and obviously you're, like, right next to um, the – you can do it right next to the sources of food consumption. Mm. So you can basically put your farm next to a city, like, very Mm. close, and then provide them all the food they need. So on a mass scale, it, it makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. Um, I'd say the differentiator between what Urban Plant Growers does and what those massive commercial companies does is we specifically target everyday people. So Mm -hmm. our goal is that if you have a kitchen or, you know, you've got a house that you can't grow plants in outdoors, you could Mm -hmm. buy one of our products and you could grow your own herbs, leafy greens, indoor plants in the Mm -hmm. comfort of your own home. Mm -hmm. So our vision is a bit more decentralized compared Mm to, uh, you know, a massive scale system that, uh, perhaps sells to supermarkets and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a D- DIY
0: iteration of, of that, that commercial, that big commercial or centralized model. Um, exactly. okay. So I'm going to do this, this, so I sent you an email before and I kind of like breaking up the different areas that I thought that I would be interested in for your, about your business, but in general, just like doing a D 2 C e-commerce, um, startup. And I kind of broke it up into like sourcing, uh, funding and manufacturing, um, storage, and uh, product distribution, marketing, you know, the software and infrastructure layer, finances, partnerships, the whole, the whole thing. So I thought I'd just go through them very, you know, we'll go through them high level, but I, I'd be keen to get like two perspectives, one on, you know, how you guys handled this for urban plant growers. And then two, maybe there's advice or things that you learned along the way in each of those steps. Um, and you can go into as much detail as you like, or you can sort of skip over areas that maybe um, you'd prefer not to go into too much detail on, on the, on the, for example, on the finances side, but uh, uh, completely at your discretion. So on, on sort what I imagine as being the first step in starting a D to C business, aside from coming up with like the general idea and concept is um, the sourcing of the product. When I think of sourcing, I think of like, okay, go to Alibaba or maybe like, local local um, manufacturer or make it myself and get it you know go to china and 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 figure out a way to get that specific product manufactured. I mean, can you can you talk about how you went about that process being a first time um, entrepreneur in this in this sort of context?
1: Yeah, totally. So um, I guess off the bat with product sourcing, this is something I don't handle. That's what Peter usually does. Um but the the origin story at least is we found the gap in the market. We realized that there was a product on Alibaba that could meet the needs of um the the sort of entry level smart garden range and mm-hmm. then we did a small trial. I think we spent like a thousand dollars each or something getting some trial units over just to test them and see how they worked mm-hmm. um and then give them to friends and family and see what they thought about it um and and then we sort of scaled it from there. That sort of small beginning, like when you're chatting to manufacturers, they really don't care about you when you're spending, you know, one or $2,000. You've got to get to big scale before you can start making significant changes and kind of getting them to make what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want to build something from scratch, you've always sort of got to have scale. It's kind of hard to, to go to a company and say, I want something that's exactly like this and have them actually do it, unless you're putting down, like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on the table. Mm-hmm. Um
0: yeah. So, to, so I guess yes. Uh, yeah. No, uh, I was just going to say. So, so the the strategy there would is to to find a product that, like, the MVP MVP version of your product um, that you can you know spend a couple of grand on or less than a couple of grand and trial it over here. Can you talk about how like what what level of scale you need to start getting a bespoke solution? So you go to your your manufacturer and you say to them, Hey, we want to maybe change the color of this or change the, the fitting of that. When would they start accepting those kinds of requests from you?
1: Yeah, it depends on the manufacturer. Like we've got about 12 or 15 that, that I, um, that we work with. Um, I would really say like, you've got to be doing like over 50 grand worth of, um, manufacturing runs with them. Like each time you do a manufacturing run, it's going to be like over 50 grand for them to start making changes. Otherwise they'll just do very superficial things.
2: Mm. Interesting.
1: Um, So on the funding side,
0: you mentioned a couple of grand. I I mean, how how did you guys do the initial, the initial round of funding for, for urban plant growers? Like what's that story look like?
1: Yeah. So um, I guess at the time when we started, I was in my last year of uni and Peter had just finished his last subject. So Peter was um, interning at, Microsoft and I was interning at um, my energy efficiency consulting gig. Um, So we both had like incomes, so we just kind of put our money in from our own savings. Uh, Over time, we sort of realized that you've got to get bigger and bigger each time. And Mm -hmm. um, unless you're selling something for a ridiculous margin, you're always going to need to put in some money from somewhere else to kind of Mm -hmm. make up the gap between, you know, what, what you buy and what you sell. Mm. Um, so yeah we pretty much bootstrapped it for the first like three years uh mm. which was just kind of investing our own money and as we went um, and, re- and, and reinvesting
0: thing... oh yeah
1: no. so gone gone yeah and, and reinvesting all the money that we made from upg like uh, for example you buy something for um uh, a customer buys something for like you know ten dollars and you make six dollars out of it you might have spent four dollars on the initial product you' obviously reinvest that $6 as much as you can throughout the business. And if you want to get the max value out of it, you've got to make everything in your business like streamlined. So you get, you know, good value for that, that money that you're using. Um, But yeah. Yeah.
0: Sorry. No, it's all right. Before I cut you off, what what were you going to say? There was an extra point you were going to mention.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I guess like you'll always end up in this funding um, deficit, when you're kind of like growing a business, especially a hardware business, like you'll always have to grow. You basically have to spend more and have more of the physical stock. And that's the problem with every startup. Um, You can bootstrap for so long that eventually you're going to run out of your own money unless you're absolutely loaded. Um, There are a couple of ways that you can sort of start to get around things. So the first one that we found was um, just getting an Amex card. Mm. Super helpful tip, but basically like, you know, you can get, Fifty-two day credit terms, which means you can manufacture stock and then you don't have to pay for it until it arrives in um, your warehouse. So until you're ready to sell, because otherwise mm. you've just got this this massive funding gap where you've spent all this money and you don't actually, um, yeah, you don't actually have any products to sell for like maybe mm. two or three months. So that's one was, big thing that helped sort of bridge yeah. that.
0: What 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 were the funding terms or the payment terms rather for like your manufacturer in? In China was do they make you pay up front or is there like a thirty day net, sixty day net kind of arrangement?
1: Usually usually there's a bit of an initial deposit and then you hmm. do a second payment um, when the goods are loaded onto a shipping container or a plane or um, whatever mode of transport you're using.
0: Cool. So the Amex help like solve a bit of that cash flow the cash flow issue. Yeah, sure. it
1: bridges a gap. It basically means you can spend money before you have it and then your sales from your business can cover the bill mm. that comes in when the Amex is due.
0: So when you, when you order these products, it takes, you know, two to three months to manufacture. Where do you put, I mean, firstly, when you first started, where do you put these products? Because I assume that there are quite, quite a few of them and, and I've seen them in person. They're quite bulky. At least the newer ones are quite bulky. Mm. What, what was your warehousing situation? Did you like, did you try third-party logistics? Like, What what was the initial iteration of your um, supply chain? And then how did that iterate over the over the last couple of years?
1: Yep. So uh, I'll touch on that in just a second, but there was one other really crucial point that I think will help people with the financing side. Yep. So when we started, this wasn't really a thing, but now there's a lot of companies that do revenue-based financing. Mm-hmm. So they'll look at your numbers. We're, we're Shopify-based, so they basically just integrate with our Shopify account. And they can see, all right, you're doing 100K per month. Um, cool. Based off your revenue, we can give you a certain amount. So their, mm. their algorithm may say, all right, we'll give you up to three months' worth of revenue. So they can give us a loan of maybe 300K. And mm. then you pay that back. But you only pay it back as a percentage of your revenue. So it means that you don't have to um, – you're not logged into a set number per month. It basically just covers the cost of goods um, in your product margins. So that's a really good way to grow because you can get big amounts of money and it kind of bridges that gap for you and you can scale quite quickly. And often they help you, um, like if you're spending money on marketing, they will give you um, a loan at a reduced rate. So it's a really good, really good way to kind of bridge that financing gap. There are a couple of businesses out there. We use um, a company called Wayflyer and they're just, yeah, they help a lot. So. I've heard, yeah,
0: I've, heard of, I've heard of another one called I think Clearco. I get ads for them all the time. I mean, think they, they do e-commerce based financing and then there's another one called Pipe, but that's yep. more for software as a service. I don't know if that, that plays into e com but it's it's a like a um, a way for you to bootstrap your like subscription business.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. They're they're all we've chatted to all of them. Um Wayfly came out on top. It is yep. a smart business model. Like if you do the maps, their annual rate of return can be like, you know, 30% sometimes if you make revenue quickly. Um, yeah. It's all just based on like the faster you make money, the faster the more money they make, they um, make which yeah. is really smart of them. It's a good business model. And they also sort of like connect you with a bunch of resources. So they might connect you with their in-house marketing team. They might connect you with product sources, all of that stuff. Um, it's a good resource.
0: Their, their business model is aligned with your growth, which is always a good always a exactly, good yeah. model to have and a good, a good incentive to have.
1: Yeah, uh, definitely.
0: Um, well, on the, so on back the... to the
1: logistics. Oh, yeah, back, back
0: <laughs> to the to the very fun logistics. So how did you guys start your logistics operation? Yeah, so chaotically.
1: <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> like at the very start, it was Peter and I and our garages. We'd get an order, and then I think we'd meet up at the train station after work and be like, "Right, have you got this? Have I got this? And if one of us had seeds that a customer needed, we'd just hand them over and then do a bit of a swap at the train station which always looked pretty dodgy yeah. Um and we did that for a while so I think we did that for maybe 10 months mm. just like sending all the orders out ourselves and making sure that everything was done um, from our house mm. which is really annoying like we had we both had full-time jobs at that time like it's really tough to just like you know post things out and mm. and kind of pack something every day and You'd have a delayed order if you're waiting on one type of seed, and um, you know if the courier didn't pick up the order, then customers would start complaining. Like, there was it was really annoying. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess around April 2019, um, we sort of realized, okay, we probably need someone to do this for us. So we looked up all the three PLs at that time. Our volume was like really small. We must be doing like five or six grand revenue per month. Um, mm-hmm we found a company that was in like uh, just on the fringe of Sydney um, and they had this massive warehouse, the biggest one I've ever seen before at that point. Um, and they said they would do it for us and they gave us some rates and we just gave them all of our stock and um, basically rolled it out. And then over time um, we started realizing that there were a lot of errors with what they were doing. So they'd pick the wrong products, they'd send the wrong seeds, they'd, um, hold on to something and not send it for no reason. They'd charge us incorrectly on the um, storage like capacity. They'd charge us incorrectly on where things are going to. Their customer service was slow. Um, every time we batched things, so like, you know, we were, still, we were still doing like small-scale batching in our living rooms and stuff and then sending it over to their warehouse, we'd basically double up on logistics expenses. Like we'd have to pay to get stuff sent, maybe like two, 300 bucks at times to send like a thousand dollars worth of stock over to the warehouse. So obviously that's like, boom, 30% of your margin gone. Um, so that's sort of like a necessary step that I think a lot of businesses have to do, but they don't, uh, there aren't many good options in Sydney or, or in Australia for that matter. So it's a really, really tough space to be in. I think, um, I guess moving on from that, we sort of, through our connections and networking, um, met someone who was working for Oz Harvest at the time, Um, and they had a bit of warehouse space in Alexandria. So we got chatting and, you know, she said, hey, come over, check out the warehouse. We'll see how it goes. Um, And I went over one day and we had a bit of a meeting. And, um, yeah, we we did a bit of an agreement and we subleased some space from them, just a really small amount of storage space. Um, And then we started to build out our own warehousing team Um, to pick and pack the orders uh and then i think like a month after that covid hit and like sales just doubled instantly um it got super busy we had to grow the warehouse team i think we had like three or four people working on it at the time it was was pretty bad because um by that time we hadn't had time to like optimize things and learn the warehousing game well enough so Mm -hmm. we were paying like a lot for storage and postage and labor and um yeah, it was, it was quite messy. Like we were getting, I look back and I was like, the stationery we bought back then was probably like two, three times as it, as much as what we pay now. Um, mm. But it was a necessary step because it meant that we could get products out to customers really quickly. If we had a problem, we can solve it immediately. If we wanted to do customization, we can do it. Um, it really helps our business grow. Mm. On, on, um, the, on the Eventually sort of,
0: yeah. Oh, sorry, just just to, on, the, on the COVID stuff, did you guys anticipate that um, – COVID was going to have this impact on sales? Like were you, did you foresee that, you know, people would be at home, you know, like let's prepare or was this kind of a a fluky thing that you guys had to kind of backtrack and solve for?
1: Yeah, I think my mentality had always been that what we were selling was a, a bull market product. And Mm -hmm. if things started to, if there was an economic downturn, then we'd be obsolete. So, like, you know, I'd always been trying to diversify. I was like, okay, we need to maybe put a little bit of time and investment into into the commercial space, maybe a bit of time into, like, education, something stable so that we've always got a bit of an income. Mm. Um, But then COVID hit and, like, all my expectations were just, like, crushed and I was proven ridiculously wrong because Mm. everyone was stuck at home and everyone wanted to pick up a hobby and learn how to do things and it was a perfect time to have something to look forward to, you know. Mm. Like, going back to it, speaking to customers at the time, they were just like, yeah, you know, I haven't left my house in three, four weeks, but every day I wake up and I see a new leaf on my plant and I know that Mm -hmm. that's progress. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was completely unexpected. We weren't prepared for it at all. I look Mm -hmm. back on it now and I say, if if I knew what I know now, um, Mm -hmm. we could have absolutely killed that year, but, uh, Mm -hmm. it was all just a learning experience. Yeah.
0: Um, on the logistic stuff, because when I when I went to your warehouse and we were talking about kind of on on, the, on your point of if I knew what I knew now on the warehousing stuff, it would be completely different. Can you can you give some examples of that? So you, you gave one earlier on the um uh, well, you 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 mentioned the the kind of equipment that you guys got. Can you give a couple of additional examples yeah, sure. on the things you would change?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, looking back on it we spent a lot of money just posting things out in the wrong boxes. So yeah. um, obviously when you post things, you've got to pay for their weight, but also it's a selection between their actual weight and their volumetric weight. Yeah. Um, that wasn't on our contracts with Australia post. Like it, we, none of us saw it until like five, six months in where we saw this tiny little asterisk that said, yeah. Oh, also all of your weight is volumetric.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, We were spending like huge amounts of money sending things that were two kilos in big boxes and getting charged for like 10, 15 kilos or something like that, which Mm. is something we just never really – it's really obvious and so stupid in hindsight, but it's something that we just never really saw at the time. Mm. Um, The other thing is like where to get the right stationery, so the right boxes, the right tapes, all of that stuff. Um, It's kind of just like finding a network of good suppliers that you can rely on and that can do good work. Um, and then to a degree, it's also uh, kind of getting stuff custom manufactured to suit your needs. You do sort of need a little bit of scale to get, to get good savings in those areas. Mm. Um, it, takes a, it takes a while and you've got to just build up a network, I guess. Mm. Um, and then the other stuff is just like warehouse planning and organization. So um, I always think about it and I'm like, the biggest thing that wastes time in a warehouse is people walking around looking for things. Mm -hmm. Um, If you can just make sure that the warehouse is always, like, tip-top, A-shape, like, organize everything and set out in a logical way, Mm -hmm. then you can save so much time from just, like, your staff walking around to pick something up from a, a, you know, a pallet or something. So, um, yeah, I guess the main things were just setting up really good KPIs. So Mm -hmm. our KPIs are um, the dollars to fulfill each parcel, Mm -hmm. and that's a combination of, like, labor, parcel, stationary, fees, and rent. Mm. Um, And that massively reduces when you have bulk because all of those sort of fixed ones kind of flatten out a little bit. Mm. Um, And then errors per 1,000 picks. Mm. So right now our warehouse makes like about nine errors per 1,000 picks. Mm. The best American warehouses are making three errors per 1,000 picks. Mm. And the best Japanese warehouses are making three errors per 10,000 picks. So there's something like structural in there that we're not understanding yet, but Mm. because we're recording it every month, we're trying to come up with all these ways that we can make it better. And we have made it like we've halved the amount of errors that we made since when we first started. So like it's getting, getting there.
0: How how did you know to look at those two sort of like North star metrics for your, I guess they assessed your warehouse, warehouse health. How, How did you come across those? Were they kind of like, you kind of went like that and said, These, they, they sound good? Or did you, did you do some research? Like,
1: how would you come across it? Yeah. I knew no one who was in logistics or warehousing. I didn't know anyone who had, like, you know, solid experience running an e-commerce warehouse. Mm. Um, so I downloaded some textbooks mm. and I just read through a bunch of warehousing textbooks. And it's really mm. hard because, like, some of them are really old and, um, you know, not that great. But some of the newer ones are a bit more switched on with, like, the technology side and the reporting side. And, yeah, they basically said, like, these are your benchmarks. <clears throat> these are what most warehouses sort of compete on, and this <clears throat> is how you can record it. Um, and once you do these, you can kind of start observing some trends and starting to optimise Start to optimize your warehouse. So just, I just read some textbooks.
0: How, how do you get from nine to three errors per 1,000 picks?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not 100% sure at the moment, but there are some things that we've tried which have helped to sort of reduce that rate. Um, One thing is just like very clear categorization of everything. So if you've got um, like 100 orders for the day and 10 different products, do each product like one at a time. And by batching those little groups, you can get more accuracy within those. Uh, The other thing could be like with scale. So they say when your warehouse gets big enough, you'll generally have like 20% of your products making 80% of your revenue. At that point, you should sort of break off that 20% 20% into its own warehouse within a warehouse, mm. um, which is a bit weird, but yeah, it basically just says create a separate section that just works on that, get someone working on just those products and make sure that there's no other products interfering with that, that could mess up the workflow. Do
0: you, is, is that because, so you have 80% of your, well, 20% of your products making, making 80% of your revenue. Would it also be that those 20% of products are making 80% of your errors? Is that kind of the reasoning for that?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's very likely that it could be. It's really likely that it could be. Um, So if you sort of work on fixing those and you've got a a good amount of optimization, but also, like, you Mm -hmm. think about the physical constraints of a warehouse and you're in this massive space, um, Mm -hmm. it could be quite a long walk to get from A to B. If you optimise a small area and say, all right, we're just going to stock, like, a week's worth of this product in this area, we're going to have one staff member who's, like, designated to pick just these orders um, and we get enough volume that we can justify them doing just those orders. Um, then you can kind of minimize all the extra other work, walking around doing admin that you need to spend and just kind of focus on your, the majority of your orders. Um, and then all the other stuff can be done by a different team. So that's one thing that they sort of talk about. The other stuff is just like, yeah, really good categorization, really good labeling, really good processes and structures, organization, organization, Good training, you gotta hire the right people. Some people like inherently uh, will not be great at working in a warehouse, especially like a order up pick packing warehouse. It's just, you know, some people have really good attention to detail and other people don't. So you just gotta make sure you hire the right people as well. Um and then just kind of setting up the structures and the process. So like we've got checklists so that when our staff come in every day, they know exactly what they've got to do whether our manager's in or not, and they can just go in, see the checklist, and execute based off that. Mm. Um, so those are all the things that we've tried. Um, but it is always a work in progress, and it's, yeah, we're, we're not there yet. So yeah. when we get to, the goal is, you know, first we hit that American benchmark of three orders per thousand, and then we'll go for the Japanese one. But, um, yeah, we're not at the American one yet, so mm. bit of work almost, to
0: do. Almost, it's not, you're not too far off. It's not like you're doing 20 or 50 errors per Per one thousand picks, so nine nine and three are the same order of magnitude.
1: Yeah, so it's impressive. And you know what? Like, we're we're still a lot better than all of the three PLs that we've we've heard of. Mm. So the company we worked with in Sydney, like they they would have been about like fifty or something. Like really? seriously, every second or third order, there was a problem with it. Um, and then you know, there's a, a business that we we Urban plan Growers, do three PL for now, mm. um, just through like you know. Uh, the startup community and some friends. Yeah. Um, and they were working with a 3PL company in Melbourne that was making massive errors. Like they, they once sent a whole box of boxes to a customer, like a box of like, not even product this boxes, is... a box of stationary <laughs> boxes like packing boxes. They sent that to a customer, you know, and, and they charge double what, what we would charge. So like the 3PL space is, kind of crazy. Um, just what, in that they're so bad and so expensive.
0: What, what's the, I mean, it, it sounds like 3PL has its benefits in that it's hands off, but it sounds like also that the negative is that it's your hands off because they're not going to have the same appreciation or knowledge of your product and know kind of the intricacies in sending it off and, and caring about the product, like you care about your product. Um, who, who? What would be the target audience for a 3PL? Like if someone's listening to this, what kind of business and what kind of stage would 3PL be best suited for?
1: Yeah, good question. 3PLs are great if you've got a really simple product. So mm. for us, we've got, say you buy one of our smart gardens, mm. you've got to get that with nutrients and with seeds so mm. that you can like actually, as um, a customer can get it and start straight away. Those are basically four picks in one order. Mm. So there's a higher chance that they're going to get one of them wrong. And it used mm. to always happen that it would say basil seeds, and they would sell something like dill. So, like, for us, it was a pretty complicated product, and they made a lot of mistakes there. For our friends who used to be with the 3PL in Melbourne, the problem was that um, they just didn't have much oversight. They were an American company that had moved over to Australia, and um, they kind of just took their business model from the U.S. and did the exact same thing here. But they didn't actually have anyone who – maintained quality control. Mm. So, like, whenever they had a query, they'd message them and be like, hey, you know, this is a problem, like, can you fix this? They'd be like, hey, sorry, uh, we can't fix this, but we can give you a refund. Mm. So, really bad customer service, but, like, you just spend so much time fixing problems that it wouldn't mm. be worth it. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I think the there aren't many good options for people, but you sort of have to do it. If you've got a simple product, like, most of your orders are just one item and it's an easy yeah. item to pick and it's well-labeled, then that could be a good option for you. Um, and if you really just don't want to do the work yourself, then that could also be a good option for you. But um, I would always suggest, like, you know, try find someone else who's got a warehouse and sublease a little bit of space and then set up your own little team. Um, or latch, you know, latch onto someone else. Like the company we're doing Fulfilling for, Fulfillment for, their name is Craft Club. They sell these cross-stitch kits and they just have, like, they put all their stuff in our warehouse, they have a bit of storage area, and then when our team is packing our orders, we'll just do theirs as well, Mm. Um, which makes sense for us and them because we can both increase our volume. We do a really good job. It's close to the city, so they can come in and, like, visit it whenever they want, Mm. Um, and they get a bit of, you know, bit of flexibility to change things up when they need. So, Mm.
0: yeah. From a a software and infrastructure standpoint, you, you mentioned you guys are doing Shopify. How do you guys manage this sort of, like, you know, when an order comes in or packing and stuff from a logistically using software, or maybe you guys don't use software. How, how do you guys handle that? Um, that that in, inside your warehouse?
1: Yeah. Good question. So uh, Shopify is like, yeah, the basis for all of our platforms. Um, we use a specific app called Starship it, mm-hmm. which is like a um, postage and fulfillment app. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one's really good. Like, You know, why would you develop your own software? Why would you sort of um, spend time doing it manually? Just use an app that already exists out there and then Mm. kind of use that as your back end for your warehouse team. It's really simple. It basically just pulls in all of our orders. You can set up automated rules. So Mm. if something's going to a certain state and there's a certain regulation, for example, like uh, in Tasmania you can't send pea seeds. Mm. So... um, we can just automatically block that if someone buys it and then we know to like call them and replace it or something. Mm. Um, In Western Australia, you can't sell alfalfa or if you do, it has to be specifically marked as like, you know, for sprouting only Mm. and not for use in the ground. So you Mm. can kind of just set up a rule that says, if it goes to Western Australia, put a notice on it that says for the attention of biosecurity, Western Australia, Mm. um, and then kind of put a label in the box that says, all right, this is for sprouting only. So you can do all of that stuff. You can do set up rules that pick the cheapest postage option. Set up rules that um, order the way that your orders come through at the end of the, at the start of the day, so that you can just go through the list and not have to do anything. Mm. Uh, yeah, it just makes it makes life so much easier, and it's really quick to do it on your own.
0: Well, and you guys just have like a roaming iPad or like a TV screen that has the orders that come through. Like, how do you, how you guys? Yeah, you, yeah,
1: yeah. We've got um we've got two laptops and just monitors, and they're sort of like attached to these like makeshift warehouse tables that I I Mm. built on my own, like when we first moved into the warehouse that we're currently in. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's just a computer and you can kind of, yeah, you plug it into like a a label printer, um, a proper printer, the monitor and then a barcode scanner. And between those kind of pieces of equipment, you can just pack and send everything quite quickly. Mm -hmm. Awesome.
0: Um, I know you're not a marketer per se, I mean, your background's in engineering and you, you've got like an eye for the operational side of things and, and logistics, but you've had to learn very fast how to do this marketing thing. Can you give me the like the story of your first paid customer? I'm sure it was family or friend sort of paid customer and then how you went about defining kind of like personas for your audience and figuring out how to find them, where do they live and how do you scale that um that marketing operation in order to reach, in order to reach them.
1: Yeah. So big asterisks on everything that I say, cause mm-hmm. I'm not a great marketer. Um, right. I would say the first sale we got, we didn't really know what we were doing. Um, we had a website. It was, you know, really quite simple. I'd taken all the photos myself. Um, I had done the design myself. Basically it was, it didn't look that great. Um, we spent some money on Google ads and got a couple of, bit of traffic to our website and then eventually someone purchased um and then we didn't really think anything of it we were like yeah cool celebrate all good now let's do some more so like um we didn't really yeah we did yeah we we just kept going with what we were doing we sort of scaled out the budgets and we sort of made our products better and um tried to expand our our budget and how much we spent on advertising to grow but that was the wrong way to do it um In hindsight, I know that as soon as you get your first customer, you've got to start surveying them. If you get one person to buy your product and they're not too different to other people who will buy your product, Mm -hmm. so you need to call them up, have a list of questions you want to ask them, figure out like what demographic they are, why they bought your product. Their main driver is the most important thing. Um, for about like a year and a half, I thought that the main driver for people buying our products was the environment, um, Mm -hmm. and sustainability. And then when I actually called them a year and a half later, Um, I did this big list of surveys with all as many customers as I could get. They were all just like, yeah, it's just so convenient and so easy. So Mm -hmm. yeah, as soon as I heard that, I just completely, you know, changed our tactic from uh, being about like the environment to, to kind of showing them how convenient and easy and straightforward Mm -hmm. the product is. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'd say that was a big mistake on our side. Like we did not do as much customer research as we should have. Mm -hmm. And it, definitely delayed our growth a lot um Mm. so
0: yeah about understanding kind of the market positioning like using using their words instead of i'm going through something similar now with with closing bell and and index guru having these customer conversations and just like trying to hear what they have to say about why they use something why they use our product and it tends to be completely different to what you imagine or idealize their use case to be because in 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 your world because you're in it all the time you're like our vision is about sustainability and renewables and yeah, that, that's your vision, but it's different to your mission, which is probably yeah. to deliver fast and convenient sources of, you know, vegetables to your customer, whatever it may be. And, and, sure. and, they, and they just see the convenience and they see money convenience. Does it do what it needs to do
1: um, yeah. beyond 100%, sustainability? 100%. Hmm. I was, I was 22. when when we started the business and I was like, going to climate rallies, 100% convinced that, um, like, I would, you know, my biggest calling in life was, was the climate and the environment, mm. which is why I was working for an energy efficiency consultancy. Um, so for me, this was just like, yeah, like, you'd grow this because you have food right at your fingertips rather than having to go to the shops to get it and watch basil or coriander just wilt away in your fridge. That was 100% clear to me. But mm. then until we actually started, like, surveying customers, We didn't start seeing what what they really cared about. And then as soon as you do start seeing what they care about, you can roll that out into everything, literally Mm -hmm. everything. Like you do a photo shoot and a customer has told you, I use this product in my living room. Um, I grow basil with it and I love the freshness and the convenience. You put that product in a living room, you put basil in it, Mm you make it like so easy. You take a picture of someone like cutting it happily and then like putting it onto their food, Mm -hmm. just like that. And that's, that's kind of replicating the image that people have or they want to see when they're looking at your product. And it immediately appeals to them because that's what people care about. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'd say the customer research piece is really key. Um, the other part for us is we've got quite a strong recurring revenue model. Mm. Like we we sell a smart garden product and you've got to buy seeds and nutrients and sometimes growth mediums mm. to keep feeding it. Um So we do have pretty good return customer rates, and a good way to kind of reach people is with email marketing um, and just being quite tasteful about email marketing. So we use a platform called Klaviyo, which is, like, very intelligent. Um, It's way better than all the other email marketing options out there. Um, You can do some very good segmenting, and you can kind of really learn a lot about your customers and make sure that you're giving them stuff that's actually useful to them rather than just spam. Um, And you can just kind of try – um, space out the intervals of when you speak to them based off your understanding of their product life cycle. If they get something that grows basil and you know that that takes two or three months to grow, then maybe two and a half months in, you'll start talking to them about, hey, like, how's your basil growing? Do you need any new seeds for your next batch when you need it to keep going? Or, um, yeah, how's your experience? All of that stuff. Do you, do you, guys, um, automate, do you guys automate
0: that based on the different segments you have? Is that, or is that something you guys are working yes. on now?
1: Yeah, correct. So th- there's a lot of automations. For example, if you buy, like, a grow light, then the same day you'll get an instruction manual, like a digital copy. You get a physical copy with the product, but you'll get a digital one as well, just in case. Mm-hmm. It'll also go through all of, like, the FAQs for that product, so mm-hmm. it'll sort of teach you a little bit about how, you know, what what people generally have issues with. Um, and sometimes there's even like a video that kind of runs through the product to help you get set up and onboarded mm. um, so there's all of that which kind of reduces friction and makes it easier for the customers mm. um but then there's also like the marketing side of things which is a lot more um a lot more salesy but also just trying to genuinely figure out like what they want and um, how they can mm. how they can meet their needs with that product
0: mm. and so over the life cycle if you know that they're coming to the end of one of their like their seed packets, you know, that you can upsell them or cross sell them on a different product down the line. Is that kind of how you think about it? How would you you define the life cycle for 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 your average kind of customer?
1: Okay, yeah, good question. Um, So I guess first would be like from an email marketing point of view, they land on your website, they might sign up to a pop-up or they might sign up to a newsletter, you'd welcome them. Um, Often people provide a little bit of a discount on welcome um, you'll see most websites do something like uh, 10% off your first order or mm. get a free this when you buy this on your first order. Um, they'll do something like that. Mm. So say that they go ahead and they make their first order. You say, hey, awesome, well done. Like, um, here's everything you need to know about your order. Um, and it will kind of give you a bit of instructions about how to set it up, how to use it, how to succeed growing. Um, and then you might, like, leave them alone for a little bit. Mm. Uh, For us, like our products look their best maybe two months in when plants start to grow and you can actually start harvesting them and eating food. Mm. So two months in, we might send them a message being like, hey, how did it all go? Can you leave us a review? Do you want to refer a friend? All that sort of stuff. Um, And then a bit later, you might kind of hit them with the, hey, like, um, you know, uh, how how are your plants going? Do you want anything else? Like, is there anything we can help you with? Do you need nutrients or seeds? yeah, all of that stuff. Um, and then I guess there are some other pieces which are like, you know, when when someone's, you know, not too interested, then you might send them an email being like, hey, you know, like, um, we hope we're not spamming you. Like, if this isn't your thing, opt out. It's all good. Um, mm. It's called, like, list cleaning. You basically just need to make sure that your audience is actually, like, engaged mm. and the content you're providing is valuable. Um, yeah, th- there's a lot of touch points that you can have with customers through email I think it's something that we really care about because for us, like it's genuinely, we want people to succeed at growing. And the best way to do that is to keep educating them. Um, And email marketing is a good way to do that. Yeah.
0: I came across a really cool uh, tweet thread uh, yesterday, just about this exact topic. I'll send it to you afterwards and I'll include it in the the little show notes as well, but it just explaining um, kind of optimizing and extracting as much value out of, out of your audience over like a 200 day, 25 email, um, uh, you know, email drip campaign. and uh, it was, it was really, really interesting to read. Um, can you talk about like beyond the email marketing, just customer acquisition, um, and how you guys went about acquiring new customers, um, and expand your audience through maybe ads or maybe through different channels. And that, that, yeah. might, that, that, that may include like distribution partners and things of that nature.
1: Yeah, definitely. So with advertising, um, I can't say we've made the best decisions historically. Um, Starting off, we definitely, we did it ourselves for as long as possible. I ran Facebook, Peter ran Google. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think maybe, it must have been like five months, no, yeah, four months after our first sale, we started getting um, some, uh, like a friend of ours who was in digital marketing to help us out a little bit. And then he just kind of did it for maybe eight months, eight months. No, a he did it for a year. Yeah. Um, and he did pretty well. He kind of took care of it all. He grew it um, for a fair bit. Um, and then we sort of moved on to a digital marketing agency. Yeah. Um, and they did an all right job for, like, the first few months. But then as soon as we started looking at the numbers, we realized, like, oh, wow, okay, um, things aren't actually that great. Uh Looking back on it, I think that a lot of digital marketing agencies try to fit you into their schedule mm. rather than doing what's best for your business. Mm. So if you're trying to get a lot out of your ads, they'll sort of just set up like a fairly generic flow, but they won't they won't really do too much optimization and analysis unless you're really like, you know, you're a big company and you really do have the power to push them. I would suggest that for a startup, um, unless you know how to do digital marketing yourself, you should try to um, get someone who works in digital marketing but wants, like, some after-hours work mm. and just pay them, like, maybe a grand or two per month to just manage your ads and optimise it. Because mm. if you've got an individual rather than a company, they're a lot more... Sorry, I'm just going to charge my yeah. They're a lot yeah. more accountable. Um, they're a lot more accountable and they'll do a better job and they'll kind of see it as their own little project rather than something that they have to do for their full-time yeah. job. But um, when you,
0: you yeah. mentioned when you looked at the numbers, that things weren't going as well as you suspected, what were you looking at? Were you looking at costs, you know, CAC, cost per acquisition, or were you looking at like general unit economics? What was the thing that sort of raised the red flag for you guys?
1: Yeah, so the big ones we always look at are CAC and ROAS, return on ad spend. Um, Basically when we started with the agency, I think we had had a really good ROAS. It was like seven and a half or eight, which is amazing by like pretty much all industry standards. Um, and then, as soon as we got them, it was August of 2020. We started seeing like a downward oh. slope. Yeah. So I was like, okay, that's really suspicious. Like, I have no idea why that's happening when we should just be massively growing. Even going into Christmas, it started declining. Yeah, like it was, it was crazy. But we didn't actually realize that until um, like a year later. So yeah, sorry. I'd say the main ones are CAC can realize that we look at, but. I think if you're an actual digital marketer, there's a lot of other metrics that yeah. you would look at. What, so I would want to speak for digital marketers.
0: No, that's all right. What, what, why do you suspect that that number was going down? What, what was happening? What was done differently?
1: Yeah, there were a lot of there are a lot of changes. So one was we potentially had a bit of a sugar pill with COVID. Mm. Um, just people's consumer habits changed a lot, and they were buying a lot of stuff that were like homeware related. So our mm. product did quite well. Mm. Um, towards the start of 2021, there were a lot of changes to Apple and uh, Facebook's privacy laws that reduced the amount of tracking. So you might have been making the same amount of sales, but it wasn't showing those those returns. Um, And, like, the remarketing wasn't as good as a result of that. Um, And then I think to a degree, like, you definitely need to just, like, with Google especially, where it's like, you get a lot of bang for your buck with the actual search terms. Mm. You need to be optimising that consistently, mm. kind of going in, analysing what works and what doesn't, and then optimising it until you've got a really efficient um, set of keywords that you can put ads out for, um, and there was none of that going on. So, yeah, I think that there's a couple of things, yeah.
0: Um, m- moving on to cash flow, I mean, we, we touched on cash flow kind of, um, but did, did you have? I mean, the Amex example was one of them. Kind of their strategies to optimize on cash flow. When I spoke to you at the warehouse, you were talking about ways that you guys were you have to keep a really keen eye on how you managed money in, money out, um, and being like insanely focused on that area. Do you have any g- generic or broad strategies here for managing cash flow? Maybe maybe it's specific to hardware businesses like yours. maybe they're just learnings along the way um, that you found have worked really well for you
1: yeah it's a good question um i would say just keep a close eye on your budget and make sure you have a budget So Mm. make sure you know like what your monthly costs are and how much money you should be making um, and how much you can be spending Mm. Um, i think every time i've done the maths it always shows that like a dollar saved is better than a dollar in revenue. Mm. Um, basically, like if you make a dollar in revenue, that's not really a dollar. You've instantly got like 10% GST, maybe like 40, 50, 60% product costs, mm. 20% advertising costs, maybe 15, 20% for your warehouse. You might be left with like 10 cents. If you, mm. if you make a dollar in sales, if you don't have your business well optimized. Mm. Um, so you definitely like, it's, in that scenario, it's better to be efficient and find a way to save a dollar than to, to make that extra dollar in revenue. So always kind of like keep an eye on the bottom line and make sure that you're being quite intelligent about that as it grows. Mm. At the same time, however, um, with physical good products like ours, hardware products, you need to scale to start hitting economies of scale. Mm. For example, like we've got a warehouse, that's a fixed cost. The only way to make that lower on a per unit basis is to – have more orders going out and sell more units. Mm. Same with, like, employees even. Like, um, if you hire someone, and, you know, we've recently made a couple of hires, but if you hire someone who's working on the Australian ad account, um, that's a certain amount of work that they can do. Whereas if you have three different countries that are all making, like, pretty big amounts of revenue and all have quite considerable budgets, then that one person's job has a larger impact, Mm. if that makes sense. Like, it's sort of just by scaling up all of your investments sort of start to flatten out and make a bit more sense.
2: Mm.
1: Other than that, like, uh, yeah, just be very intelligent, report on it. I, I report monthly. I'd love to do it more frequently, but every time I run a report on my like, customer service, warehouse, sales, mm. marketing, you come up with like all these action items that you can implement Um, So I'd say, yeah, just have a frequent reporting structure and kind of just keep an eye on how you can make things better.
0: That's one thing that I noticed immediately about you guys. Like when I walked upstairs, you guys had this big uh, post-it note thing with like the table and you would, I I don't know, I forget exactly what you tracked in each of those things, but it might've been those metrics we tracked earlier. Um, But everything was optimised around tracking and reporting and making sure everyone knew what was happening at the like the most granular level. What what was on that poster note? Was that just what we (laughs) spoke about? Yeah.
1: I'm just curious. Yeah. So, so, um, the, the poster had three main categories. So it had warehouse customer service and, um, servicing. Mm. So warehouse is, uh, it was the price per parcel, the errors per 1000 picks Mm. and then the time to fulfillment. Mm. So, um, at the moment, uh, like obviously you want to kind of minimize the parcel costs, minimize the errors and minimize the amount of time it takes to get something sent out. So those are the three main things that we track on. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of them like, you know, our, our postage, our handling time is usually like a day or two. Mm -hmm. We know that we're not going to get same day handling until we like double our volume. Mm -hmm. And the main reason is just like we, our warehouse team doesn't work five days a week. So Mm -hmm. how could we do same day postage until we've got that? Mm -hmm. So, um, So, yeah, like that's the one for the warehouse. For customer service, it's response time, um, number of queries, and then number of queries per 1,000 store sessions. Mm. And that last one is sort of like a bit of a metric on how well the website is explained. Mm. If the website is explained well, if the product pages are, like, articulated well, if um, there aren't many faulty items, there's not many problems with postage, there's not many um, errors or, like, people asking questions about how they can use things, then mm-hmm. that number will be quite low. Whereas mm-hmm. if you've got heaps of problems everywhere, it'll be quite high. So it's sort of just a metric of, like, yeah, how many issues do you have, like, as a percentage of how, mu- how many store heaps. visits you're getting? Yeah. But then, of course, like, you do just need to track the absolute volume of, of customer service queries because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, like, if you're getting – a thousand a thousand queries per month about a faulty item. It doesn't matter if that's like one percent of your sales, you've still got a thousand people that have a faulty item. Yeah, so you've the absolute always got to kind of keep an eye on the absolute numbers and mm. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I, I like to I know this is something that Fred Smith from DHL. No, mm. sorry, not DHL. It's Fred Smith from, from FedEx. Mm. Um he is very like, you know, keen on that. He'll make sure that all of their KPIs are like in absolute numbers because if you're the person who needed, um, if you're the hospital that needed like a certain piece of equipment to do a heart mm. transplant, and your equipment went missing, it doesn't matter if you know you're under that one percent service threshold. Mm. You're still the hospital that didn't get their heart yeah, surgery I mean, done. Yeah, you know? the, the,
0: the 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 risk you run when you try to scale is that you kind of like you're always thinking in percentage terms, but those absolute numbers humanize the end sale. Um, so even if it's 10, you're like, it's a good point, it's it's 10 people that didn't get what they wanted on time. And, you know, word of mouth is a, can be a, can be a blessing and it can be a curse, um, and people tend to complain way louder than they do. Um, you know, when they like something, they tend to be a little bit more quiet when they like something you might, they might tell a friend or two, but someone doesn't get their stuff. They go on your Google review and they say, what the fuck? Where's my, you know, where are my seeds? Where are, you know, this, this, this thing's a, it's a, it's a scam or whatever. Like people tend to jump to conclusions pretty damn quick. Um, on
1: the flip side. It makes a huge impact. Yeah, Yeah. I can imagine. And you look at some of the best brands out there, like the brands that that people really talk about and really rave about Mm. and um, I don't know, I I can people probably say like Koala or something like that. Mm. They've got their four hour delivery times. There's winning appliances who I know like people always talk about how how great their delivery drivers are and how quick their service is and how easy it is to get stuff set up. Um, Those are two examples of companies that are logistics and customer service driven and use those two features as sales points. Whereas traditional businesses might see those um, business areas as costs, which I think is like, you know, atrocious, like, yeah, there's a cost associated, but there's a massive opportunity. If you can do those things right, but to make it right, you've got to be looking at all the problems and fixing them really quickly to make the overall system better. Mm
0: Um last this is kind of the last pillar of this discussion just on distribution partnerships i noticed you guys have done a really good job getting in front of like david jones um some other retailers that have that escaped me now but there was there's a couple of big names there can can you talk about how you like initiate those conversations those partnerships um Mm. and then how you handle those conversations um in order to close a deal so if, if i've got a product that I want to sell, I want to sell this mug. How do I go about that?
1: For sure. I can talk uh, as much as my experience lets me. Mm. Um, Peter's a bit more of like the sales guy at UPG, you know, um, so so he manages most of those conversations. Um, I guess starting with our initial B2B strategy, we had, had the idea that if we sell to all of the small nurseries and garden stores um, and like little plant shops, in Australia, then over time our products will become quite common mm. and the big retailers will pick us up just because we'll be everywhere, we'll be mm. ubiquitous. Um, so we spent a year with, like, a dedicated salesperson who works, like, what, three days a week or something like that, um, calling all of these people and emailing them and trying to get our products in store, and we got absolutely nowhere. Mm. Um, that was, like, all of 2022. We got, sorry, 2020, 2020 COVID, mm. yeah, we got absolutely nowhere. And then when. at the start of twenty twenty two, uh I think oh yeah, good yeah, a couple of reasons. Like a lot of the smaller stores, they're owned by maybe like an individual or a small mm. family or something. The business owner still runs the shop. Mm. They don't have enough time to mm. take a risk on a new product and see whether this random idea, this crazy person trying to sell grow lights is legit or not. Mm. often they also have limited shelf space if they're a physical store. Mm. So the actual amount of um, products that they can stock is quite limited, and they're always going to spend that on the higher margin products like plants. Mm. Um, And I remember, like, when we told them what our margins were on what we were selling, they were just like, oh, sorry, our plants have, like, double, half the margin or something like that. Mm. Um, You know, like, they they make, like, 80 90% on some plants, whereas, you know, our margin might have been much lower than that. Mm-hmm. And that's just what they're used to working in the plant industry. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess it's they're very busy people. They don't have much shelf space. They don't have the available finances to take a risk on a new product as a big business would. Um, so they just kind of don't take as many risks overall, and they, mm-hmm. they're not open to the new products.
0: Yeah. So what, what happened with um, that following? I years? guess
1: moving into how we – yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So 2021, at the start of the year, We were sort of planning out what we were going to do. And then out of nowhere, we just got an email from a buyer at David Jones. Mm. Um, And she said, hey, you know, like, I'm from David Jones. I'm interested in your products. I've seen them online. They look really great. I'd love to chat about getting them in store. Mm. Um, So we just set up a meeting. We had a chat. It was quite straightforward. Uh, You just talk about, like, um, why it's beneficial to them, you know, what they can do with it, um, which stores they can sell through, what our customers are like. Uh, and then you kind of just go into the the contract side of things and set up a bit of like a B two B contract and set up some rates with them. Uh, and then yeah, you get you get onboarded, yeah. you go through their process, you figure out what their logistics structure is like, and then you supply them products. It, it's pretty yeah, it, it's it's not that complicated actually. It's pretty straightforward. It's yeah. actually way easier than working with all of the small businesses. It was really just like they've got su- all of these big companies have a dedicated person whose job is to find new products mm. and onboard them into their sort of ecosystem. So it's I guess, a lot easier.
0: I guess it'll be different if you guys do more outreach to like uh, David Jones esque type partners, cause they reached out to you. They had a clean, a clear, like eye on what you were Correct. doing. Yeah. And there was no need to convince them, I suppose. So that, that, that's, um, that yeah. is a benefit there. On the like actual margin side, and we don't have to go into details here if it, if you're not if you're prohibited from going into detail. But you know, I know Woolies or Coles. You know, when you try to sell a product to them, they'll they'll demand pretty tough margins uh, for the for the person selling to them. Well, what's the setup look like generally? What's the structure between in the the commercial relationship between you and like a David Jones, for instance? How does that work?
1: Yeah. Um, you do have to be pretty intelligent with the margins. Like, they do take a bit of a risk um, buying stuff off us. So you've mm-hmm. kind of got to be accepting of that and um, try to find a number that works pretty well for both of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll always end up being, like, somewhere in between what you sell for and what your cost of goods is. And you've right. just got to realize, like, okay, what can I do this for and what actually makes sense to me. And um, they, they buy. I can't go into with... too much detail other than that. No, that's all
0: right. That's all right. But, but they, they, yeah. will send, they will buy a set number of units from you ahead of time. And then if they do well, then they'll continue purchasing from you until, you know, until their, their heart desires kind of thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. Usually what's happened with us is like the first order that they've placed has been a set number of units and a variety of our products. Mm-hmm. And then they'll figure out what works best for their store and they'll go deep in on one product. Mm. So um, kind of tying in that previous point about um, like uh, how you would find a customer fresh rather than them coming to you Mm. with flower power, Peter, my business partner, he went out to them, he set up a meeting, he went into their main store in Milpera um, and he chatted to them with some products and showed them what we had. And then we kind of went through the contract and we got onboarded. Um, Our first order to them was kind of a bit of everything. Mm. And then over time they realized, okay, the main thing that sells are the grow lights for indoor plants. Mm. Um, So they just started going deep on those. So now all they buy is indoor, indoor grow lights, but Mm. they buy a lot of them because they're, they're a plant store. They sell heaps of plants. Mm. Um, So yeah, I guess that's how, how it works. Awesome, man. I just noticed
0: the time. I didn't realize that it was we've been chatting for an hour and 15 minutes, man. I I could talk for you. Oh, wow. Me neither. I, I could chat with you forever, man. Um, and I will come visit. It. I'll come. I'll, I'll come visit you again at the warehouse, and I'll help you do some picks. Hopefully, I can get your number down from <laughs> nine to three. Maybe I'm the missing link. Um. Yeah. And yeah if, if, is it? Is there any any way you wanted to send people or anything you wanted to, to say? Um, links, anything. Um. You're welcome to. You're welcome to. Um, do that now.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess if you're in the market for an indoor garden of some sort, if you want to grow herbs or leafy greens or indoor plants, then you should head to urbanplantgrowers.com. If you're in the UK or New Zealand, you can do that through those sites as well. Uh, We're set up in all of those countries right now. Um, If you're an e-commerce startup and you're looking for some advice or some tips, you're starting out, I'd love to have a chat. Um, I really do enjoy chatting to other people in the industry and just kind of picking their brains and seeing what they're on about um, and trying to help them not make the mistakes that I've made in the <laughs> past. Uh, and there are plenty of them. Uh, other than that, like I hope I've actually been able to provide some info that's been useful to people. Um, yeah. You definitely <laughs> Still lots you, of learnings to go, but you know, no, it's so,
0: so useful, man. So you are su- you're super smart. And, and the, the part that I like, love the most about what you're doing is that you just learn so quickly from those mistakes. It's not about the actual mistake. You don't know what you don't know. It's about like, the rate of change and the rate of improvement that that is the de- determining factor of success, and not so uh, you guys are doing such a good job. And urban plant growers this time next year is going to be huge, huge. Uh-huh. Yeah, watch this space, <laughs> watch this space. All right, mate, I'm just gonna watch make- this space. <laughs> so